Well, seems like the uh, last few Wednesdays, at least the ones I've been paying attention to, we've had uh, maybe a little, maybe extended praise and worship, or somebody's got a word or some ministry going on, and uh, I feel like I'm getting in the pulpit kind of early tonight, and I have a short message, at least I think I do, I never know how these things are going to turn out, uh, if my message does go short, uh, you can praise the Lord and get out of here and enjoy the evening. But if you're going to stick around, uh, please remember, keep it quiet in that hallway until you are sure they are done in the youth room. All right. If you want to go back there and hang out and have snacks, of course, it's going to be open, but not until they are done. And we will likely be done before they will. Who knows? Uh, also, I, I want to say a big thanks to Mike Mack, Iron Mike Mack, who has, uh, he's been really on the go for, for several days now. He spent, uh, more time, uh, far more time than I did in the, in the hospital with Elmer and checking on the family and handling the funeral. He did an outstanding job as usual. So God bless Mike Mack. I'm so glad you're here. And, uh, uh, Nick and Sherry, I know you guys have had your hands full and, uh, things are, hope you're getting some rest, but uh, let's keep them in your prayers. They've got a lot, there's still a lot of things to do. And now that the, I guess the uh, activity or the excitement of the uh, funeral is over, things can begin to settle in. Just keep the whole family lifted up. Many of you know the the extended family. And yeah, what a, praise God for a, for a life well lived. You're going to miss Elmer a lot, but uh, what a joy it is to know, uh, know where he is and know that he knew where he was going and Praise God. Um, excuse my voice, too. I'm catching a healing. I am catching it. Praise God for healing. Uh, but, you know, boy, you, you fight, uh, fight what I'm fighting for a couple of days. I start to sound a little bit more like my dad, which has always been a dream of mine. You can open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 139. We'll probably read the whole thing, uh, just so we get it in context. Once again, it's not very long. And I'm not going to do a teaching verse by verse on it, because there's uh, something specific I do want to get to. But let's go ahead and read the first 18 verses. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is a Psalm of David, as uh, many of them are. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now he's acknowledging, and I hope you can appreciate this, uh, as we m have mentioned several, several times on Sunday mornings as we go through the Bible, what we have is a very accurate record of God's dealings with man. Uh, 
And you go back to the garden where Adam and Eve walked with God. They had a pretty good idea of what God was like. But after the fall, and when you start dealing with, uh, with Abraham and his covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants, what we see is centuries of what we call progressive revelation, where they did not know everything there was. We, uh, we don't know everything there is to know about God. I'm just saying you and I have a much better grasp on who God is and what he's like than Abraham did in his day when he, when he got the call. He knew he was hearing God, and he followed God, and Abraham certainly knew some things that you and I don't, and he had a faith that many of us don't. But in terms of doctrine and God's attributes and things, uh, this is a pretty mature treatment of the divine attributes of God coming from David. David did have a great understanding of exactly who God was. You know, I've puzzled about... Uh, uh, you remember when Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, and what's he do? He gets on a ship and runs away. Uh, did he really think that if he got out of Israel, then he wouldn't have to hear from God anymore? Or was it just a matter, I'm going to defy him, and once I'm on the ship, well, sorry, God, I'm sorry, I repent, but I can't turn the ship around. I don't know. But, they, but many people in that age had a very geographical understanding of divinity, and the God of Israel to a lot of uh, maybe perhaps some of the more ignorant people in Israel was the God of their land. And uh, as we discussed before, there were times when there were uh, battles going on and their enemies would say, well, their God is stronger in the valley, so let's fight in the mountains and maybe our God will be stronger in the mountains or vice versa. Anyway, David understands. He's talking about how God knows everything, can do anything, and is everywhere. His omniscience, his omnipotence, right? And his omnipresence. So then he goes on, uh, where are we at? Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And then this, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now this is a fan, this is, this is a wonderful, wonderful, assuring verse because he talks about the greatness of God, the bigness of God, the power of God, how all encompassing he is. And then he takes a couple verses to marvel that God hasn't just noticed him from time to time, but he has great many thoughts of David, of us. He, was, he would not be able to number the ways that God has consciously thought about him. And I say it's comforting. It might be a little scary. Because sometimes I think people want to be kind of flying under the radar, as it were. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, David writes in at least a, a couple of different psalms where he says, uh, we talked about the greatness of God, and they said, what is man that you would take thought of him? What is man that you would take thought of him? And I know people have taken this uh, verse and, and 
ponder the bigness of the universe and say, well, what David is saying is we're just specks of dust compared to the vastness of the universe. That's not what David is saying at all. He's saying, considering the greatness of all creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the animals, all the creation right here on earth, the fact that God does take notice of us and think actively, think thoughts, good thoughts toward us, means that man is something that maybe we haven't considered. What is man? What is man? We are re- we were created for something big, right? Now, here's the part I really wanted to get to. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, you can hold your place there because we'll be coming back. But meanwhile, turn to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, it starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so on. And then gets to, uh, he gets to the part where he's talking, and I referenced it several times uh, in the past few years, often in, in, uh, when we're talking about the tithe. We're talking about tithe and the offering. And it's the year of giving, so... I'll just throw it out there one more time. People say, well, the the tithe is legalism. We're not under the law anymore. And yet, you look at what Jesus says here. This is the part where he says, you've heard it said, you shall not do murder. But I'm telling you, if you call your brother an empty head or a fool or a good for nothing, you're guilty of murder in your heart. You're in danger of hellfire. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you are committing adultery in your heart. You're already guilty. And so I consider how Jesus raises the bar through this whole section of this, of the sermon. And I think that's, that's the principle we ought to apply when we're thinking about and talking about the tithe. Okay. You've heard it said. You know, bring the tithe into the storehouse. But I'm telling you, it all belongs to me. Give everything that's in your heart to give. Recognize that it's all God's and be willing. You know, go to him with your hands open and trust him. You can't outgive him. He will fill it, etc. But this is not where I'm going with that tonight. He gives all these uh, upgrades, I guess, to the law. You've heard this, but I'm telling you this. And then says... In verse 43, Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, excuse me, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, I like the way that ends because he's talking here about how there is clearly a state of enmity that exists between God and sinful man. But 
that state of enmity exists because of how sinful man is viewing and responding to God. And God is not pouring out his wrath on them in response. He's not reciprocating with that kind of hatred. You understand? Wrath is being stored up for the sons of disobedience, but it'll be poured out later. For As far as you and I are concerned, it was poured out on Jesus. For anybody who's under the blood doesn't have to worry about uh, the day of wrath, right? Praise God. But as far as the here and now, what's God's response to the wicked? It rains on them just like it rains on us. The sun shines on them just like it shines on us. This is how God is. And Jesus is saying, you do that. You do that. He goes on. We'll go ahead and read this because it's a little bit funny. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? (laughs) Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's funny to me that tax collector was the only example he used in both those verses. (laughs) It's like there weren't any other evil people he could compare them to, like uh, tax collectors or uh, yeah, tax collectors, those guys too. They were uh, obviously not a popular breed. All right. So he tells them, he tells them this, and that's very straightforward. We understand all that. Here's what I want to know. When he opens up this, uh, this part of the, the, the sermon and he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Where did they hear that? You know, that's not what it says in Leviticus. Did you know that? You can't find that in the law. We're looking for, okay, the law says this, but I'm telling you the heart behind the law. He's not quoting the law here. The law says, love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't say anything about hating your enemies. Did you know that? You probably did. But how easy it is to skip through this, to just kind of, well, okay, Jesus said this, but he's not lying They had heard it said. Where did they hear it? Well, strong possibility is from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, certainly from the Zealots. Remember the times. They were living under oppressive Roman rule. And it was very easy for them to hate the Romans. And they had been stirred up uh, by certain divisions of Judaism to be ready you know, especially because the Messiah could be here at any time and we need to be ready to pounce our, on our enemies. And they had a very strong sense, even if they weren't fulfilling the law, they still had a very strong sense under this oppression that they were God's people. And that therefore, if they had enemies, in this case, Rome, then they were God's enemies. If I can get just a little bit uh, crass for a moment, I think their idea of God was a little bit more like the Godfather. And uh, there's a, the, the opening scene of The Godfather where uh, Brando is talking to this uh, mortician who's asking him for help because the police can't help him. And he's chastising this man for never coming to him in friendship. Only now that he needs something violent done does he come to him. And he said to him, this is the line, I'm probably going to mess this line up, but he said, if you'd come to me in friendship, he says, uh, and if an honest man like yourself should happen to make enemies, they would become my enemies. And then they would fear you. And I think this is kind of the way the Jews like to think about God. 
Uh, don't you worry if somebody bothers you. If they become your enemy, uh, I'll be their enemy. And yet, this is not what we see David talking about. If we go back here, David's approach isn't perfect, as we'll see here in just, in just a second. But back in Psalm 139, when he says, uh, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, in verse 19. Slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty man. What is it that bothers them? What is it that qualifies them as wicked? He goes on to say, they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? You see, it's a pretty big difference. I started to say it's a subtle difference, but it's not. David is personally offended that there are people who are taking his Lord's name in vain, who have made themselves enemies of God. And it stirs up in him hatred for them. And we're going to look at that word hatred here in a little bit. But the Jews are like, come on, we're God's favored people, and these guys are bothering us. Come on, God, get mad at them because of what they're doing to us. Not we're mad at them because how they're treating you. We want you to be mad at them because of how they're treating us. It's very self-centered. David had a heart after God, didn't he? So he's offended how they fail to honor Jehovah as God. And what has he done also? He has uh, talked about the greatness of God, the goodness of God. And here, and, and even better, he does it better in other Psalms, talking about the beauty of creation, the wonder of the creation that is mankind, his own body he's talking about. God is just, what I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are everywhere. This is, and what he's offended by is not just the irreligious attitude of his neighbors who hate God, but how the, their very presence on this beautiful earth spoils its beauty and detracts from his ability to enjoy the good gifts of God. God, I want to honor you, and I want to look at this world and just praise you for all the wonder in it. And yet my heart breaks because of the evil men that surround me. My relationship with you and your creation would be so much better if you would just slay the wicked. His heart's in the right place. His approach is a little bit wrong, a little bit. We'll get that in just a second. Jesus, as always, gives heaven's perspective. He reveals just how deep the love of God goes. They, he's telling them they hate God because they're lost. Go back to Matthew for just a second. And we're flipping back and forth. Matthew 5 still. And go back to verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they put a, sorry, <clears throat> nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying, uh, look, you have to be different. We can't be just like the world, only more successful, healthier, happier. This is, you understand, this is exactly what Israel always, always, always wanted. 
They wanted to pursue the same things and live the same way as the neighboring nations, but they wanted God's blessing. You know, God sets them in the midst of darkness, as it were, amidst these pagan nations and says, this is the the way you're going to be. I'm going to prosper you so that the nations around you will be drawn to me. All right? But what they're going to be drawn to, what they're going to, what they're going to meet when they come, when they're drawn to, basically when they come to see what's different, what they need to meet is me. You need to introduce them to me. So what do they do? They, they, it, before long, they're crying out, we want a king. Why? Because we want to what? Be like the other nations. What a heartbreaking thing for God to hear. That's exactly what I don't want you to be. So he's telling, look, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The difference between you and the unbeliever needs to be as stark a difference as the difference between dark and light. My son and I eat eggs every single morning for breakfast. And I love eggs. He loves eggs. And I put salt on them every day. It doesn't take much salt. But if you don't put any salt on an egg or anything on an egg, you know, it's not gross, but it doesn't taste like much. And you're the salt of the earth. And I know you've heard it too. Salt is also a preservative. But he's talking about the flavor here. Be different. He commands them and he commands us to be different. To be different. And this difference is not designed to make the world and the lost fear us. It's supposed to turn them to the God who changes us, to the God who makes us different. You know, once again, you know, this idea that Israel wanted to be on top, they wanted to subdue the nations around them, not win them. They never, ever really got that. There were converts, there were proselytes, and from the Old Testament all the way up through Jesus' day and Paul's day, there were, there were converts to Judaism, right? But as a whole, nations were not drawn to Jehovah. They were not drawn to uh, the God of Israel. And God is saying, the change that I have worked in you is supposed to be obvious, it's supposed to be noticeable, and it should not be so that they would look at you and tremble and serve you. It's supposed to, uh, the, the, it's supposed to be attractive. They should simply want to be like you. And that gives you the opportunity to introduce me. So says God. So, love your enemies, Jesus said. Love your enemies. This is how you're going to win them over. You're not going to win them over by hating them, no matter what your motive is. But here's the other message. There's an underlying message here that I think was pretty safe to, to read, which is that those, the enemies that Jesus is talking about, hmm, the enemies that Jesus is talking about are not really our true enemies, are they? Do we have a true enemy? We absolutely do. It's spelled out. And it's Satan. And we have a different set of instructions for that enemy. I may have told you this story. Forgive me. 
when I was at Canaan land and I was sitting in, uh, you know, we had three hours of Bible school every day, Monday through Friday. And, uh, I mean, I was one of the teachers and, uh, there was another guy, um, who I will leave unnamed because he's a sweet guy, great guy, loves the Lord, still serving the Lord, but he couldn't teach. All right. He just couldn't teach. And, and he was teaching out of a book and there was time left at the end of the class. So he said, I'll just open it up for questions and answers. And I can't remember what he was teaching. I really think the question that God asked had nothing to do with what he was teaching, but he didn't specify only ask questions about what he was teaching. And one of the students raised his hand and said, brother, so-and-so, does God hate the devil? And uh, the teacher goes, you know, that's a good question. I really don't know how to answer it. And I wanted to scream. And yet I understand where he's coming from. If you've never thought that, if you've never thought about it, well, wait a second, God is love. God can't hate anybody. Or can he? Yes, he can. Got to understand what the word hate is. For that matter, you have to understand what the word love is. We misunderstand that big time. And even though we probably do have a little more time uh, than I thought we were going to have, uh, I'm not going to do a, a, a teaching on the different words for love. There are at least four uh, that, that many of you are familiar with, but we, we have the word love. You know, I love my wife. I love the Lord. I love pizza. I love gardening. You know, we say love, 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 and obviously I don't mean the same thing about each and every one of those. And it's not just a matter of degrees either. It's different kinds of love, right? Uh, but when it comes to love, you know, the love that Jesus, for God so loved the world, what did that love look like? It looked like action. He's not talking about, he is not talking about his feelings for us. He's not talking about his tender affections, which he has. But the definition of love in its highest form is what does love do? You can't tell, you can say, well, yeah, I love God, but, well, you have tender feelings and warm feelings for God, but loving God as he demands to be loved is obeying him, right? Love, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's an act of your will, right? So this is how God loves us. It's not just saying, I love you. I love you. No. How did God demonstrate his love for us? He gave his son to die for us. Now that's real love. So in the general sense then, what genuine love is, is preferring somebody else, laying down your own preferences, even your own life for the benefit and prosperity of another. I'm going to, I love you by doing this to make your life better. This action is designed for your benefit, regardless of what it does for me. What is hatred? Bitter feelings, anger, extreme dislike. That word works, but if you look at it as the opposite of love, which I think we should, it's a series of actions that are meant to inhibit or even destroy somebody else's life. It's not about how I feel, it's about what I do. What are God's actions about when it comes to the devil? One quick example, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, He who sins is of the devil, 
for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. I like that. And that's a pretty good biblical example of hate, I think. He, God's purposes when it comes to the devil are to put an end to his plans and his purposes and ultimately his freedom. He will be, you know, there is a lake of fire prepared for him and his angels. And that's where he will one day wind up and be forever, along with everybody else who refuses to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. So, Finally, we come back to uh, Psalm 139, because what I think David is saying here, he's not exactly, I don't think he's exactly right, but again, his heart is, he wants to see God's will prevailing on the earth. And to him, that looks like getting rid of everybody who refuses to submit to his God. So slay them, Lord. Kill them. Know that you would slay the wicked. Um, but then I love what he said. Let's, let's look at this again in verse 22. And now think about it in, in terms of who our real enemy is. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And I think it's all right. And, I, and sometimes I wonder if our hatred for the devil isn't strong enough. Number one, should we have certain feelings that motivate us to act a certain way when it comes to the devil? I think we should. I think sometimes, though, uh, our gut reaction is a little too much like fear and maybe not enough like anger, maybe not enough like perfect hatred. But if I'm going to hate the devil with perfect hate, that means my actions and the things I do to prepare for that action need to be aimed at destroying his work. And if I love you, it's not just about destroying his work in my life. Man, I don't want to be wrestling under a load of poverty, sickness, and death. I've been redeemed from that. So I'll fight for my rights, for prosperity, health, life, all the things that uh, uh, you know, Christ has redeemed me for, right? But I love you. So I want my actions to be aimed at destroying his work in your life. And I want you to, you need to feel the same way about one another and about me. Remember, this isn't about you. It's not just about you. It's about us, right? It's about him. So here he is. He praises God for who he is, for everything he has done and can do, everything he's capable of admires his beauty, and then in this righteous indignation begs God to slay the wicked. But then says in verse 23, hey, before you do that, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a pretty wise, wise ending to that prayer, if you think about it. Destroy the wicked. Before you do, though, make sure there's no wickedness in me. 
And that's a pretty honest, honest prayer because we can be praying passionately. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. We can be praying passionately and not dishonestly, but we can still be deceived. Uh, it, it's, it's a little bit, it can be, if we're not careful, a little bit or even a lot like the, when Jesus talks about, you know, getting the log out of your eye. Uh, before you go pulling a splinter out of somebody else's. He doesn't say not to get the splinter out of somebody else's eye. He says deal with the garbage that's in your life first. Okay? So we can sit there and be praying, oh, God, open the eyes of these wicked people. Cause them to see how wrong they are. Turn them around. Oh, God, that they would just be like me. You know, and, and the next thing you know, we're, we're being like the Pharisee. I thank thee, O Lord, that I am not like other men. That's uh, not how we should be praying. Uh we should always include, we should always acknowledge. And I love, you know, look how he starts off, man. God, you know everything. There's nowhere I can go that I'm not going to be in your presence. And there's nothing in me that you cannot see. So shine your light into my life, even the dark corners, because guess what? He can see, he is way, way, way more aware of what's in you and on your heart and on your mind than even you are, let alone what anybody else thinks about you. You know he's not fooled. But we can even fool ourselves. And he can show us, you know, that prayer you prayed, I want you to think about that because it's kind of ugly to me. Let's change it to this. And this is, by the way, just as a bonus, uh, this is where praying in the Spirit is really, really valuable. I feel very, very strongly. I sense and I, I just know that, that, well, the Bible tells us that we're edified, right? That we're built up when we pray in the Spirit. But my praying in with the understanding gets better the more time I spend praying in the Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit is training us to pray correctly when we are allowing Him to pray through us. Amen? Why don't you stand up? Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. We'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website, at livingwordfamily.org.